What's up, guys? Welcome to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Matt Slarczyk and Peter Fendero. This is a podcast where we tackle hot nursing topics, one conversation at a time. What are we talking about today, Petey? Well, today, Matt, we're going to talk about this one drug that the World Health Organization is considering a wonder drug. It's one of, on the list on one of the most important medications in the world, a drug called ketamine. We're also going to talk a little bit about the ICU, some medications in the ICU and how things are done in the ICU. That drug, special K is what we call it, or they call it a K-hole in the, on, the, on the streets. Um, but before we get to that topic about ketamine, guys, give this podcast a five stars, please. Um, you guys have no idea how much it helps us. It helps the algorithm. It helps us get more ranked, more views. And ultimately, we're going to deliver higher quality content to you. So give us that rating. Take that time out of the day. Me and Peter would really appreciate it. Exactly. If it's not five stars, don't waste your time. Just, you know, go do your thing. Go do some dishes. Also, if you're on YouTube, thank you for listening. Subscribe to that. Keep, um, keep, up, keep, with, keep up with us on a gram, on Facebook. We're doing more and more. So we're working on a couple first product that we're going to release soon. Right, Petey? That's exactly. Yes, sir, Matthew. <laughs> How's San Diego treating you? It is doing doing well, man. The weather's kind of chilly. It's been a low of 40s here, surprisingly. So today wasn't like a shorts weather. It was like a long sleeve pants sweater. Um, but it ain't that too bad. Long sleeve pants weather, huh? Mm-hmm. It's 25 where I'm at right now. It's more of mm-hmm. like a double the pants with some joggers, two t-shirts and two hoodies and a jacket kind of weather over here. Damn, I don't miss it one bit. But even though I'm flying in for the holidays and... This podcast is going to be live right before the New Year's, guys. So hopefully everybody's thinking about their 2020 intentions and everybody's hyped up for 2020 because I know I am. Good for you, Matthew. Good for you. Any goals for 2020? Of course. I'm always trying to become a better version of myself, but definitely want to take this right here to the next level. So that's my goal, professional level, just travel nursing. And yeah, how about you? Yeah, same concept, some travel nursing. Get this. NCLEX checklist out before May would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See where well, life goes, I guess. But on today's episode, so ketamine, guys. Ketamine was popularized back during the Vietnam War. It was used majority as an anti-aesthetic for you know people that got shot that were wounded in war. So they you know inject them with this drug, got them numb a little bit. Hopefully, they got the care that they need afterwards. So ketamine is actually a NMDA uh, receptor antagonist. So that's the reason behind why it's used as anesthesia and analgesic as well. But now as time moves on, we know psilocybin is getting used for depression. Now they're trying to do some experience with, with ketamine and it's been showing some pretty good results. Some studies have been showing some positive results with depression, major depression, and also depression that's resistant to other drugs like SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants. It's crazy how California is making a revolution here where when we were just in Oakland, they legalized um, what's called cyclocybins. And now these trials are being tested out for this dissociative drug, which is in the same drug class as PCP guys, like it causes hallucinations. And we in the hospital where I'm working at, they're already starting modules and they're start, starting to use ketamine therapy. Um, so not only is it for... Um, uh, what is it called? The major depression, which we're going to talk about in the studies. It's also used as a sedative for surgery and you could actually induce people while they're intubated with ketamine. I haven't seen it personally yet, 
but it's going to be pretty cool to see how it works better than opioids or like propofol. Yeah, it's actually really cool to see because I like this this idea of drugs that we have been working with the past. Like psilocybin has been around for, for many years. So so has marijuana and they're legalizing those things because it is showing some kind of a kind of a benefit because we all know that these pharmaceutical drugs that we currently have, they do a decent job treating people, but there is a subgroup of people that are resistant to these drugs or these drugs are just not not doing enough. So, you know, here comes in marijuana, psilocybin, and now ketamine for, you know, PTSD, depressive disorders, and just like anybody with like a, any kind of psychiatric illness in the, in the future. Bi- I know bipolar is also getting treated with these medications. And it's good to see because this these meds have been around for a very long time. So I feel like we have a pretty good clinical grasp on them. It's more of like, how do we make these things safe in our, it's, I guess I would say it, how do we make these things bioavailable and safe at the same time in our bodies? So we kind of got to experiment with the dosages, see what kind of works because like ketamine in high doses, it's a, it's a sedative, it's an analgesic. It numbs you and it could potentially, you know, make you stop breathing. It's, we use it to induce surgery and induce like intubations. So we obviously can't be giving this drug out just to anybody because it's obviously going to have those effects like morphine. Morphine, you know, what that turns to is a lot of people use morphine, then it turns to heroin as a street drug and people will die from, you know, respiratory depression and eventually stop breathing. So it's good that we're doing this research and I'm glad that it's actually happening, but we still got to find out a lot about the safe dosages. Is it something that we can only do in the clinical space or something that we can now use, maybe go from IV to a PO version that's safe over the counter, not over the counter, but safe to take, take at home. Cause right now ketamine is not used outside a clinical setting, correct? Yeah, so the, the one medication that's being released by the FDA after drug trials, it's called um, S-ketamine, I guess. And guess who made that drug, man? Johnson & Johnson. Of course, so, dude. I know. They always get their first little... Um, I wonder who they bought out. But anyways, um, the way this drug works is it's used a as a as an add-on to antidepressants. So the only way you could get this drug is if you're the 30% of the population that SSRIs or antidepressants hasn't worked. So what you do is you take this on top of um, your antidepressant at SSRI. And what happens is they have been having great success rates. Um, it's They're calling it one of the biggest breakthroughs in depression research. So I wonder if this could be used as a over-the-counter because right now, you have to go to your doctor's office and take this dose and he has to administer it, correct? You can't just take it home and be sedated technically. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's, um, I'm not sure it was a physician or a, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but you do have to be with somebody else in like actual clinical center. You got to go into the office and take it in the office and go through it in the office because it's like a, I think it's like 45 minutes of, of an effect. Of- Something Mm-hmm. something like that. And you have to kind of sign a waiver that you don't, you cannot drive yourself home. Someone has to pick you up. Yeah, that's very true. It's, it's a, um, dissociative drug. So it does produce euphoria, can produce hallucinations. Obviously we don't want, you, you know, tripping balls when we give this medication, but that plays a role into, you know, your antidepressant maybe, and like unlocks different neural pathways in your, in your brain. And a lot of times it's not just, they give you the medication and they let you just, you know, lay through it it's they, they talk to you they use like different kind of talking strategies and they kind of work work you work with you through your through your high essentially that's what i'm thinking too and they have actually tested this on like a 16 year old boy it was like a 2017 um yale study and this kid basically tried 
to kill himself at least three times. And after taking this ketamine infusion, his symptoms literally reduced and he had no longer suicide ideations. This is just, of course, clinical trials. It's not like being given for suicide, but hopefully in the future, this could be prevention of, right? Not prevention of, but just like a, a bad way, a last ditch effort to help somebody with suicide. Yeah. I mean, of course, if, if it works, why not give it to them, especially if it's like this, this last ditch effort. I'm not saying ketamine is going to be a last ditch effort for everybody. It might be, you know, first line, but this is how these medications start. So you got to first do research on the subgroup that doesn't respond to our current standards of care. And that's kind of where we should move forward because you can't just test it like the public with it. You got to small, start small and then move on. Uh, there is one study that I read. I didn't fully read it because um, you got to pay to basically buy this article, but it was um, through Harvard, Harvard University. And Dex actually experimented with ketamine with, with individuals and it showed a 60% response rate within like four and a half hours. And I think the week long response rate was like 30%, which which is actually, it was like, it was 40% the response rate for a week. So these people, so one dose of ketamine kind of helped them through through a week's worth of depression. And like I said, this depression was either major depressive disorder or it was a depression that was resistant to other kind of med- medications. And, I, and they did, a, like it was conjugate with current uh, recommended medication, like SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants. It's interesting how we're moving because, you know, during the, the 1900s, I'm not sure the exact dates, right? It went from trying like LSD and all that research and they completely halted any kind of research. And it wasn't until like the 2000s now that we're starting to see the re-emerging of like, um, of like all these drugs. And for like the longest time, alcohol was the answer, which was, you know, given to us and all the shelves, all the gas stations. And we're starting to realize that it's freaking bad poison, man. So I wonder if the next few generations, we're going to have a society that's going to be totally different on what it's consuming and stuff like that. Because look at like cigarettes, right? Like, dude, now nobody smokes cigarettes, man. It's hard to see everybody vapes or doesn't anymore. Yeah, that's true. Like, look at the medication your parents had, if you could. It's kind of hard to recall because we're younger. But back then, like, think of antibiotics. They were used religiously. Like, everyone got antibiotic. You see the doctor, they give you an antibiotic. Then they found out that is it making a huge difference on these like antibiotic resistant you know uh, bacteria or or cells, and it wasn't doing any benefit to to viruses. So now they're cutting back antibiotics. So antibiotics are are still fairly new. So as long as we give this medication to society, we keep doing these trials. And so many times, only going to tell. I mean, later on, we never know. We could find out that ketamine is completely completely pointless or completely doesn't work. Maybe it's just like a. Uh, just like a metabolite of ketamine that's actually producing an effect and not actually not ketamine as a whole. And we could just target that and give that to people. You never know what's really going to happen. But it's crazy to think about that. That ketamine is on the World Health Organizations. They have a list of like most important medication like in the world and ketamine is on it. Oxygen is also on the list. Morphine is also on the list. Versed's on the list. Ketamine is on the World Health Organization list of most important medications, clearly for its analgesic effects, but maybe it could be on there for its now its antidepressant effects. I know there's diff, two different derivatives of, of ketamine. There's like an S type and a K type. And the one that you mentioned, the nasal spray, it's actually um, the type of ketamine that doesn't work as well as, as the S type. So like I said, you got to try these things out and then this is, this is how it works. You, you try out these medications and then you kind of learn 
what part of the medication actually does these certain things and you isolate it. And then that's what you kind of give out, give out to the public. And that's how you target different, different, um, you know, different diseases and different infections, things like that. But just process, it's a whole long process. And I'm sure if it shows some benefit, if, even if it helps only like 5% of the population or even 3%, why not? Why not to give it to them? And I think that's definitely going to be a push that we're going to see in the next, um, next few years because look how cyclocybins are progressing. So anyways, since we're talking about ketamine and we mentioned it about the ICU, how about we jump into what to expect as an ICU nurse? And a lot of people that work in the ICU, they could benefit from this to kind of get a perspective of how maybe we do things. And if you're a nursing student wanting to get into the ICU, this is going to be perfect for you to kind of figure out the day-to-day routine and or night-to-night routine that me and PD have and something that you might expect. So the obvious first biggest difference between the ICU and the general floors is, is the patient ratios. It's usually two to one, one to one. Occasionally there's three to one if your house is that ratio, which does happen, but it's unfortunate, but that's how life works. And it's more hands-on care. You're the one usually doing the turning. You're the one doing the bathing. You're the one doing the vitals. It's, you're with the patient the whole shift. You provide the primary care. You do the times, you know how the patient reacts when you turn them to the left side, you know how they react when you turn them to the right side. That's why it's it's two to one instead of you know having your five or, or six six patients because you're fully with, with that patient. You should know everything from head to toe, every response, what's what that patient is doing when you do every little thing. Like you know when you flush them, or flush is NG, when you flush is peg, you should know exactly how that patient reacts to everything that you give to them. And usually just because you're working ICU, yeah, just like you said, center patient-centered care, you're doing everything. And literally every single ICU, I've been noticing that there's no tech. So we're mostly doing all the work, which is okay because we need to be on the freaking trigger with everything that happens, like on the dot, just to kind of know how the patient is progressing. But I feel like, and I noticed, like, did you ever notice there's a lot of like OCD in nursing, ICU nursing? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, I know I'm not the most neat person when it comes to the layout of, of, of the room, but I know some, some day shift nurses are, I mean, I'm pretty decent, but there's some nurses that are more OCD than I am about how the, the room looks. And I mean, I know everything is at each, each moment. It just doesn't look as organized as somebody else's. So it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of interesting to, to see when you leave and you come back the next night and your room was like, completely neat or completely organized in a, in a different way because you're only there for 12 hours and you kind of make that environment to your liking, but then the next, next nurse comes and then they makes that environment to her liking. And it's kind of, just goes back and forth. Yeah. And it happens all the time with like the littlest things. So when the shift starts and we could talk about everything that we do, but one thing that I like to do is always look through like my lines and I like to kind of like sometimes put them in the right spots. So if I have a patient that's on like specific pressers. I like to align my pressers a specific way. I always like to have leave always plugged in first, then like um, epinephrine and then vaso or something. Just depends why citing it, you know? But that gets into the nitty gritty. But that's one thing that I noticed that probably could change between shifts. Yeah, from from my lines, if I, I mean like, like three drips isn't that hard to manage, but once you get into like four, five, six, seven, things like that, but when I have a lot of drips going, I label the line itself. I take a white piece of paper. It's like a, it's like a sticky. Oh, it's like, kind of it's, put on the line. Yeah. So I, yes. So I put that on the line with the medication name. 
And then also on the channel where it's go or on a channel, I put another sticky. I put clear tape because it's so easy to pull off. I put clear tape and I write where that's going to. Is it going to the intro? Is it going to the RA? Is it going peripherally? Just so I don't, I don't gotta keep looking, like I don't gotta keep following the line. So the line, t- the line tells me what medication is going through it without actually looking at the medications. And then just by looking at the pump, I know where each med is going. So I can always move stuff around real quick like that. Yeah. So I do it the same way, but now that since I work here in like San Diego, I'm not getting critical patients, man. Some of these ICU patients are like a joke and well, it's unfortunate because I'm losing my skill, but I don't have to do that lately. Are you, are you sure you want to say that you want to knock on wood or anything? Cause you're going to have that night next time you go to work. You know, people hear you talking shit. They're going to crash on you now. I feel, I feel the energy. I'm, manif- I'm manifesting an easy day and look what's happening. It's going to just hit me possibly. Um, so we're starting the day, right? As ICU nurses, Pete, we're, we always have our meetings. Let's not forget that before we even start the shift, we get to hear about how the um, unit is doing the last fall. If there's um, different news of the week, right? We usually say a prayer sometimes and Sometimes we hear about all these patient scores, patient satisfactions. Tell your patient you do hourly running because these scores. That's one that one negative thing about nursing. You have to hear all this management stuff when you walk in. But ultimately, it pays their pockets. Yeah, I mean the meetings are the meetings. If I'm there for like three in a row, it gets repetitive. So I kind of tune out on like the last two nights. Like things don't really change too much if you're there for three in a row. But you should at least listen to the first day. Yeah, the first day, the first day, definitely. It's a little different here because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm asked completely part of the team fully, but I still kind of listen to everybody. And that's another thing I'm, I'm, it's only been a month and I've been floating like 50% of the time. So I'm still trying to get used to my environment and the ICU. Like it doesn't feel like home yet. That's the only thing. Like I'm still like disassociated. I'm still that traveler. So I'm kind of getting there. So what's like the major difference between the ICU where you were at in Illinois versus the ICU where you're at currently? Well, the, the biggest difference is, of course, the brakes, right? Um, when it comes to the equipment, the pumps are a little bit different. Um, they don't take a lot of patients like carotid procedures. So it's, it's a little bit of not of as aggressive ICU, I would say. But there are some patients that I've seen in like violent restraints. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen that here. So I'm getting a different taste of the ICU, which is cool. Yeah. That's, that's actually really cool because I like getting a taste of all the different, I guess in Oakland we had that one ICU, but it was cool getting a taste of different floors because I never did like a med surge or any, or any kind of other floor like that. But it was, I actually didn't really mind being being floated. Everyone was so nice. That, yeah, Oakland Hospital is nice. So we're getting into the ICU. We had our meeting and now we're going to start our shift. So usually... If you have time, you could sit down with your nurse and get a little bit of like a heads up to look at the chart. If not, go to the room is what you're supposed to do, guys, of course. And you're going to start getting report and disease processes. You, you know, you give your report, you find out a little bit about the patient. I'm not going to go into details of how I give report because that's a little too much. Another episode, right? And I like to always look at like notes first. That's like my thing just to kind of figure out what the heck's going on. And the longer you're a nurse, the, you already could start puzzling the picture together and you don't have to read all the notes. You're like, okay, patient is for this. I'm going to expect that. And then I just go into orders. Is that how you kind of start your day? For me, yeah. For the most part, very similar to, to what you do. I get a report. I actually look at the MAR 
before I kind of look at look at notes. So usually get a report, look at my computer for a little bit, the more notes, then I hop on and do my assessment, do my line recs. And you know, after that, just start passing meds. Look at also don't forget the nursing order to see if there's anything there. Because do nurses do forget little details that, you know, maybe you're supposed to restart tube feeds at twenty at nine PM instead of restarting them at the goal at forty or whatever. Just like little things like that there that aren't the most important thing in the world, but you also want to be able to take care of those, those kind of things. Cause even though it's not hugely important on their whole outlook, but you still want to give them nutrition. You still want to be safe because you don't want them to aspirate and this, things like that. You just got to be mindful of what you're doing. You have two patients, you have one patient, try to look a little bit more, more in detail and try to always try to go like a little bit of extra mile. Just, just, you know, just do the stuff that you're supposed to. You don't have six patients. I know stuff gets busy. I know it gets crazy when someone's deteriorating, when someone's going to shit. Well, at least try to do everything that you can to your best of your ability. I am, I'm actually very OCD about that beginning of my shift. Like I'll look into, into the orders and I'm going to find out exactly everything, the rates, what I have to give. I'm going to look at labs right away just to see if I have to um, be careful for everything. And after I get that orders labs, I'll, do, I'll go do my assessment. I'll look at the tubings, making sure everything is good. And that assessment is priority because then I know the main thing that's going on with the patient. So then I'll prioritize that assessment for like the next like 12 hours to kind of take a peek at it. You know, patient comes in for something right, uh, related to respiratory. I'm going to prioritize that um, system for the whole entire night. And yes. of course. Yeah. And don't forget about the one thing that really, you know, pisses me off is when people put too much volume in the pumps so check your drips, make sure there's enough volume because when that shit goes dry, it's the most annoying thing in the world, especially if you have like six, seven drips going on and it's Y-sided. And then the one that went dry is the one that was being Y-sided. And now you got, now you got to be quick because that's, that thing's a presser, you know, it's going to drop real quick. I hate that though. So always, when you're starting a new, new bag of, of fluids, new bag of any kind of medication, like take out like 20 cc's, put 80 instead of 100, put 240 instead of 250. Like don't put the full damn back. That just gets annoying. You basically want your pump to have, give you a heads up like, hey, this is going to run dry in an hour, get an extra bag. And there's those nurses that put full. And I do mention this sometimes to them. If I see them next shift, I'm like, hey, this is my pet peeve. Yo, make sure you have, you know, add less. Yes. And if you're, if you're running low, it's always also courteous to, you know, maybe request the drip for the next shift, which is also, you know, nice because pharmacy is amazing. God bless them. But sometimes they do drag dick a little bit. So please request it. Like even when my bag is, is like half, half gone, I still request it for the next shift. Just so they can have it just in case you never know. Maybe the bag's going to pop. Pharmacy is the same way everywhere, man. Like it doesn't change whether you never, I thought I'm going to come to this state and I'm going to see less of, um, the issue of waiting for medications or things will be on time. Things will be stacked. It's very universal everywhere. And I'm sure those guys are working hard. We should have a pharmacist on, on the show. I'm going to work on that one just to kind of see their perspective or how they feel when nurses are freaking calling them and blowing up that little cell phone about, um, where's my med? And he's, this guy's running around with like 60 different orders. Yeah. I, I love, I love pharmacy. They're, they're amazing individuals, amazing people. And I know that, in our shoes, it seems like it's taking forever, 
but you got to realize that there's one pharmacy and they got the whole hospital to cover. And some of these medications, they got to mix them, which sometimes takes like an hour. That's why it was good to request earlier. But God bless our souls. I like pharmacy. They're a bit cool. They're, I haven't had an issue with them. You know, if my chip's not there in an hour, I call them. Hey, what's going on? Maybe they're just saying, yeah, we're tubing it right now. They tube it. Maybe they forgot. Just remind them. Because pharmacists, you know, don't yell at your pharmacist. Don't get angry. Because one day you're going to have a question with pharmacy. You're going to look up your drips and you're going to see which one's compatible. And guess what? Computer says that not tested. Well, shit, it's not tested. So what do you do now? You're going to call a pharmacist. And you don't want the pharmacist to be like, I don't know. You know, you actually want them to take the effort and actually look it up on their end, see if it's any any different. Definitely. Maintain those relationships, guys. I'm yet to explore which pharmacist I work with in my shifts. So some tips and tricks when it comes to nursing, right? One thing I would definitely do is if you're going into ICU, go get your ACLS to kind of save you some time because that's a requirement. And if you're in the ICU and you're new, make sure you prioritize and learn the algorithm of ACLS. Like it will come back all the time. Even if I'm on telly sometimes, like I have to utilize my ACLS and it's going to save you a lot of anxiety and stress, like figuring out what to do, how to troubleshoot, even like in emergent situations. When you think of the, the ICU, a lot of people imagine these very sick, ill patients. They are very sick. They are very ill, but they don't code every day and all the time. That's why LCS is ACLS is important because you are going to have a code situation in your life and it's good to be, be prepared. And the microphone that are ACLS prepared on your unit, the smoother the code is going to go. You know, the ACLS prepares you for literally everything. If someone's going Brady, if someone's going tachycardic, if someone's losing a pulse, maybe they're tacky, but they have no pulse. Maybe they're tacky and they do have a pulse. Maybe monitor showing 80, but they really have no pulse. So it kind of prepares you for, for everything. It's a, it's a good rundown. And even though we're required to take the class, I think once every, what is it, once a year or once every every two, two years, years, it's always, it's a really good, it's a really good refresher every time I take that class, just because you can't remember everything. That's why it's like a kind of like a high mindset. Like if everybody knows something about the ACLS protocol, you know, you can help each other out. But it's very important for you to know, especially in the, in the ICU, because some ICUs, you are the code team. And if you're an ICU, you are running your own codes or you're going to other units to run their codes. Definitely. And even like here in the um, ICU, once I've seen little things like we did a mock code or I was intubating a patient, it's funny how their, their standards of ACLS changes too. So it's good to know and adopt those. For example, we intubated a patient and back in Chicago, we usually connected a piece to the, um, where the breathing tube is during intubation and it would give us a CO2 uh, reading. They don't even do that here they connect like a color and it blows a specific color to let them know that they're in the lungs, which kind of blew my mind because I kind of mentioned it. Hey, you guys didn't check a CO2 and they kind of pointed it out their way of doing it. So it was so cool. That's when they do that instead of like the CO2 cable or do they do that instead of like an ABG? They do that instead of CO2 to kind of make sure they're in the lungs. So they're not looking whether it's above 20 to get like ROSC and things like that. That's actually really cool. I, I, we have the CO2 monitor, which I, which I heard isn't, isn't like the, the most reliable thing, but for me, they haven't, I've never had one fail, but I, I have heard the color one. I've never seen it though. It just, you know, they do different evidence-based things. Like sometimes instead of like doing heparin, they do the, you know, the anti-XA instead of the PTT. Um, also about um, ACLS, which big things, know your H's and T's and knowing 
when you're running a code too, like think about those HTs because you could help the doctor because sometimes they're not thinking about stuff like getting the sugar. Are they hypoxic to, uh, to begin with? Maybe you have to replace the bicarb. Things that during a code that are happening, you're trying to reverse those causes that put the patient in the first place that cause like the pulseless um, VTAC or VFib. Yeah, so the H's and T's is what we call them. I'm going to go over them with you real quick just so you guys know them. I'm going to read off this this thing just so I don't want to get, get, them, get them wrong. Because, you know, I don't always have them memorized, but we just kind of troubleshoot as it is. And especially if you're working like a specialized unit, you kind of know why they're going into cardiac arrest. Especially if it's like maybe they have a renal issue and their potassium is like, like seven. And now they're like, you know, in a VTAC, you know, that's probably like going to be your, your sole cause. So when you work on a specialized unit, you're going to be kind of more familiar why your patient deteriorate. But... According to ACL's protocol, H's and T's are hypoxemia, hypoglycemia, hyperkalemia, tension pneumothorax, toxins, tamponade, and thrombus or an MI. And it kind of, we'll do a really quick rundown on how to kind of treat these issues. But hypo- hypoxemia, it's usually one's respiratory failure. Most likely they need, or they do need to be intubated. Not most likely they're all going to need to be intubated. And that kind of fixes the resolution. You know, some things maybe. I know there's some kids with uh, what's called like epi, epi, epiglottitis or something like that, where their throat seals, and that would be a cause for hypoxemia. So you intubate them, get oxygen to their lungs, and that treats the cause. Hyperkalemia. And, and sometimes yes. to diagnose, they just check an ABG, guys, arterial blood gas, gives you guys a reading. If it's pH is basically not compatible with life, we need to put a breathing tube in. What's the next one? Hypoglycemia. I've never literally seen anybody code due to hypoglycemia, but if you're not paying attention to the sugars, if you're kind of, you know, half-assing these blood sugars and insulin, maybe your paper patient's NPO, sugars have been running low, nobody adjusted the sliding scale, you forgot that an NPO, and guess what, you gave them the 20 of Lantus, plus you cover their sugar of 151, and now you're hypoglycemic in the, in the code. So quick fix is dextrose. Hopefully it doesn't happen to you. Hopefully if they're NPO, you're doing Q, sugars, Q6. But I've never actually had anybody code that's hypoglycemic. I've seen somebody being like basically lethargic and somnolent without like sternal rubs, dude. And you push an amp of D50, like 30 seconds later, it's like Norcam, man. These people like wake up and like, what's going on? So definitely you could get comatose and knock the heck out with, you know, having low blood sugars. But it's pretty preventable. Yeah, for hypoglycemia, I'm sure that's something that happens more out on the field where people don't have good blood sugar regulation and they cold. But in a hospital, we're pretty strict on sugars. You're either ACHS, Q6, you know, we're, we're like your criticals, critically in critical health. So you're highly prioritized, highly managed. The next one is going to be hyperkalemia. For that, we usually, usually I see insulin and glucose. You, know, you got to give glucose because you get a person insulin. It's going to drop their sugar. So you want to make sure they don't go from hyperkalemia to hypoglycemia, and then you're coding for hyperkalemia and hypoglycemia. So that's why we give insulin because it puts potassium into the cell and then it decreases the potassium in your, basically in your, in your blood tree. Right? Am I correct on that one? I think you could, damn, we're about to be troubleshooted here. Yeah, you're right. It, potassium gets pushed inside of the cells for um, hyperkalemia. Right, because yeah. you're testing blood. So obviously it's going to have potassium in the blood. So you got to push that push bad boy in the cell. Exactly. Next one, tension pneumothorax, guys. That's when basically your lung collapses on one side, your trachea deviates to the side. And before even troubleshooting those little symptoms of like anxiety, like you're going to see the patient's throat move, 
you're gonna, they're going to be short of breath. They're freaking, they're going to deset a little bit. You, then you might need some oxygen. They might feel pain here. Those are pretty simple. We need to decompress that. Usually they put a chest tube in. Sometimes they'll put a needle that's more out on the field. Yeah. For the pneumothorax, I've seen it happen when somebody pulls a chest tube. It's, it's a, pneum, a pneumoforms and it kind of gets bigger. They didn't seal it off properly or it didn't heal quick enough. And now you have a pneumoforming, but it forms slowly. A little bit of air is getting in there. And that turned into like a severe issue when a patient becomes short of breath, trachea deviates, you know, you get diminished lung sounds on one side and then you got to put the chest back in. That's right. When they're going to bounce into toxins now, toxins could be anything from drugs, from too much Tylenol, whatever it is, basically reverse it. If it's heroin, give them some Narcan. There's really not much about toxins, right? Um, tamponade, basically your pericardial sac, which is a sac that the heart sits in, it becomes fluid overloaded in the way fluid builds up, the heart can't beat as well, and you have to decompress that. And we have those like um, typical three signs, right? Hypotension, muffled heart sounds, and like a Bex triad. Oh, it's called Bex triad. And then there's also muffled heart sounds. Sorry. I've never seen that one personally. I don't know if you did PD, but just basically have to decompress the sac. I have, but I was not the primary nurse and my patient wasn't doing too good themselves. So unfortunately, I did not see them you know, do a pericardiosynthesis, but I, but they basically, it's basically like, if you imagine a chest tube, it's like a, it's similar. It's, it's what they're doing. is basically almost the same thing. You're draining fluid from the pericardial sac. So you got to insert some kind of line in there to drain that fluid. And then it's not as big as a chest tube because I know chest tube has those big chambers and they sit on the ground. This one's usually like a, like a, a small needle insertion where it just kind of, I guess you could say decompresses it with the fluid removal and it goes to like, um, kind of almost like a JP drain kind of thing. Almost it looks like. Yeah. There it's uh, I don't think it's as prevalent. It's preventable with a lot of like with a lot nowadays because of the, the, um, where medicine is, it's very preventable. We don't see it as often. And the last T is thrombus. And that's basically having a heart attack, myocardial infarction. You want to basically get the patient down to cath lab if that's possible, or try to resolve what is causing the occlusion. That's, you know, your heart is not getting the oxygen that causing you to um, possibly be pulseless. I mean, the best way to really spot MI, I guess, from an ICU standpoint would be, I guess, a change in rhythm. Are they having, you know, wide T complexes? Are they elevated? And what's going on with the heart? Does the rhythm random looks different? And of course, chest pain, things like that. But usually I don't really see very much MIs. Like I said, it's just like with hypoglycemia, you see them more, out in the field because when someone has an MI out in the field, you should bring them in, take them to the cath lab, they get stented, put in anticoagulation, and you know the the, the thrombus is actually removed or it's it's um they give you TPA where it eats the clot up. So let, those things are more of a very acute setting unless your person is very very sick and not anticoagulated. I feel like most cases that we see in the ICU, it's more respiratory and it's more like rhythm changes that we have to like um, troubleshoot because like their injection fraction already sucks and their labs are out of whack, which causes um, the, vent the ventricular rhythms. I think that's the most that I utilize my ACLS for. Yeah, that is same here. That, that's correct. I actually use my, I guess we actually, I mean, it wasn't really ACLS because we have atropine like PR and on standby with people that have that come in with with certain issues, but 
I did have a was my patient, it was my buddy's patient a couple of nights ago that they put on amiodarone because she initially came in for hyperkalemia, had a bunch of runs of VTAC, which we know hyperkalemia can cause to go to a VTAC, a post VTAC, and a potential cold. So we saw her on amiodarone. Actually, it was hypokalemia, not hyperkalemia that she came in for. So we gave her a bunch of potassium. She had some runs of VTAC. Obviously, those got better when the potassium came back up. But then we saw her on amiodarone. And she had a very good response to amiodarone, actually too good of a response where she became bradycardic. So bradycardia is a heart rate of less than 60. And when we sleep, our heart rate does tend to go below 60. If you're a really healthy individual or you're an athlete, some athletes have a heart rate of, of 50. I know I have a lower heart rate when I, when I sleep due to my Apple watch telling me what it is. So bradycardia for me is normal. There's no reason for me to be reversed. I'm not going to have some, I'm not going to have atrophy on standby next to my bed in case I, you know, go to 55 because it's below 60. That's how it works. So above everything, you want to make sure that the monitor is, is correct. So go assess your patient. You see a heart rate in the forties, 35, go assess them. Are they symptomatic? Are they complete with it? Are they the same person that they were before? Do they know where they're at? Do they know their name? First name, last name, you know, they did a birth. Do they know which president? Just ask simple questions. If they're, they're the same, what about the blood pressure? Is it fine? That that's considered asymptomatic bradycardia. So you don't really gotta do much for that besides monitor. Maybe they're an amio for their AFib RVR, which is atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. That's why they're an amio. And amio does tend to cause bradycardia occasionally. So maybe that's just causing that, which is nothing crazy to get worried about because you're more worried about them going back to AFib RVR versus the the, the brady at fifty or fifty five. But let's say you go to the patient's room. They got an A-line in. And every time they Brady, when they go, normally they're in 70s, but every time they go to Brady in the 40s and the 30s, their pressure drops. Normally they're in the 90s above, you know, 60s. Now they're 70s above 20s or 60s above 40s, and they're not really with it. This would be a good time to push atropine. And atropine, you give 0.5. That actually happens to my buddy's patient where starting him on starting him on all these drugs, and her rhythm dropped to 30s, and her pressure dropped with it. Thankfully, she had an A-line, so we knew what it was. We pushed half a milligram, half a milligram of atropine, had a great response for it, was good for maybe 10, 15 minutes. After that, back down to the 30s, hypotensive. We had to stop some of her, some of her sedation, gave her another dose of atropine, and then we eventually started her on, on dopamine. Just for, because dopamine is actually a pretty cool drug. It could be used as a pressure and also as an antrope, so it could raise your blood pressure and also could have your heart beat a little harder, which, you know, eventually, is, it in, hmm? is it in small doses that increase the heart rate or do you have to give a larger dose for the dopamine to work? See, that one, I, um, I forgot. We give her a low dose. So I'm pretty sure the low dose is going to be the anotropic effect and then the higher dose. Don't quote me on this. I'm, I'm, not even, I'm, not even, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm not even going to say anything because I'm not hundred percent sure. I know at certain doses, it's anotrope where it helps heart contract. And at certain doses, it's a pressure yeah. where it increases the heart, heart rate. So your patient's going to Brady, asymptomatic, he's probably fine. If your patient's Brady, symptomatic, per ACL protocol, definitely could have given atropine in ICU, half a milligram. 
And then worst case scenario, sometimes we go into the pacing where we just put some pads on and we kind of increase the heart rate based on electrical conductive system when the medications don't work. And we could do this, that same thing with like VTAC and VFIP guys. So those are both shockable rhythms that we're, we try to get the patients out of. And essentially when it comes to ACLS, we shock these people just to try to reconvert their um, electrical system to start freaking pacing properly. That's that's why those H's and T's come in like clutch because we try to reverse the things that puts the patient there like bad pH, you know, give some bicarb. We did have the patient on pads just in case, but she responded very well to the atropine two doses and she actually responded very well to dopamine. So we didn't need to need a pacer, but... We did get orders from one of the cardiologists that we could transcutaneously pace if we need to. And some some places have, you know, like the pacer boxes. You could also pace out the crash car. Your crash car is going to have all the medications that, that you will need, atropine, epi, amyo, everything that they will need is going to be there, bicarb. And also everything you need to set up lines, sterile gloves, just sterile, you know, um, things you put on a patient, dra- uh, drapes. And... You could pace your patient through the, through the crash card because it has like that giant monitor. Um, I forgot what's it called, but you could pace them, but you could shock them with it. You could do everything, everything with that before you, you know, because it's an emergency situation. You could bring it in, do it real quick, and then you could transition to the, the pacer box when you get one. When you um, guys do your codes, do you guys put it on AED mode or is it just on, on the monitor? Uh, the one on the crash card? Yes. We, well, the only modes that we have on there is defib and then synchronize and then, and then pace. Uh, my, so my question is, is what I'm noticing is when I worked at the previous ICU, we always went on AED mode. So meaning when you're running the code, there's a guy telling you, Hey, shock the rhythm or analyzing heart rhythm. The reason why I ask is here, they don't use that mode. They just put it on and they do the shocking themselves based on the position. No. We do not have any kind of machinery telling us what to do. It is us doing what needs to be done. Okay. It's an AED mode. It's, um, it's beneficial for some people. What, so AC last guys, that's just basically the wrap up of things. One big thing in the ICU that I'm noticing on top of knowing your skill, knowing your shit, and basically being able to be a good nurse in the ICU with, you know, doing labs, giving a report, all that is teamwork. And I think it goes unnoticed the amount of teamwork that it takes to be an ICU nurse. What would you say? You think teamwork is a huge quality of an ICU nurse? Well, definitely teamwork. Like I said, even though we're all ICU nurses, each of us might have a different background in the knowledge. Some of us might have seen different things than others. And it's always good to work together. It's always good to ask questions and troubleshoot. It doesn't matter how long have you been there for. It just... You, you don't know everything. You haven't seen everything. doesn't matter if you've been there for 20 years. You for sure, even if you're not specialized, you for sure haven't seen anything. It's always good to ask questions, talk about it, talk things through. And even if you're a new grad, it's okay to talk it through with new grad because think about it, they're new grads. So they haven't seen as much as you have. So they might open up different doors, different pathways to like your thought process. Maybe they might think of something that you haven't really thought about. But teamwork is, that, is, is definitely huge, especially teamwork. Is definitely huge, especially when you got a heavy set patient and try to turn that patient by yourself. It ain't going to work out very good. And I would definitely say when it comes to teamwork is 
bouncing those ideas around that you mentioned, there's so many different cases of different patients that sometimes you did this one way. Sometimes you have to do it another way based on your scenario. And like we as nurses doing the teamwork part, we're always bouncing ideas and telling, Hey, maybe you should do this instead. And I'm always had, I always have those few nurses and I'm learning those nurses here where I'm always coming and I'm giving my scenario and they always give me some awesome feedback. And usually it's great because you know, two minds work better than one. That's where it's at. And, you know, sometimes you get the lesser, heavier assignment or your assignment's less heavy. And you should definitely be that nurse that asks or not ask, but just does extra extra mile and just helps other nurses. Like you don't want to be struggling and then have nobody to help you because you've been a, a, a dick the last four years that doesn't talk to anyone, doesn't help anybody. No, that's it's not good. That's not going to be productive. That's not going to lead to a good patient patient care. It's just going to, you're going to be miserable because your patient is going to crash. So it's always good to help out somebody when their patient's crashing because they usually reciprocate with the, with the same help. And then sometimes you have, you, you know, you have those um, cases where you're in isolation gown and you, you have to flag a nurse on to get you supplies. So you don't want to be that annoying kind. So always kind of like when I have downtime, I always kind of like go and run a unit and ask, does anybody need help? Especially being the new guy around the block. I try to do that just to kind of build those good relationships. Of course you, that's, you know, that happens to me all the time. I literally forget everything. I'm trying or not, I don't forget everything. Like when you go to ISO room, I always end up forgetting something. It's like a pair of gloves or like a new trick tire or something like that. And I'm always letting somebody down. So what I try to do is kind of, I do my assessment, see what I need. And then I kind of bring us, bring whatever I need where I'm sitting. Just so I have it. So I can walk in the room next time I go in there. That and I'm trying to think what else is another. Do you think there's any other cool little tips when it comes to teamwork? Oh, there's no tech usually in the ICU. So we're always going to have to be helping each other out. So if people think that they go, they go to the ICU and they could be, you know, like lone wolves and take care of business. It's not going to happen. Like those nurses that you work with, like make sure you guys have awesome relationships because those relationships could carry over, you know, um, outside of the hospital and you guys could be awesome friends, but at least as coworkers, you guys have each other's backs. And you know, when you have like those awesome nurses, when you start your shift, you know, it's going to be a good shift in the IC when they're around, because regardless of a bad night or a good night, they're there to always crack a joke and things like that. You can't be, you know, a good work environment. Can't beat it. So, I mean, it's a pretty good episode. You want to touch on anything else? No, I think we're, I think we should wrap this one up. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk about some VTech and VFIT, but I guess we'll save that for next time. We can touch about it. That's okay. We'll, we'll get, we'll get them next time because it's been for a little bit. So today guys, we talked about some, a cool drug called ketamine that's in the works for treating major depressive disorder and also treating depression that's resistant to, you know, your other antidepressant medications like anti or not anti, like your SSRIs, I'm sorry, SSRIs and triclic antidepressants. And then we talked about how to kind of go through a code, the H's and T's of the, of the ICU and how to be a good ICU nurse and how to prep for the ICU and a little bit of ACLs as well and teamwork. Can't be teamwork. Can't be teamwork, guys. And um, ACLS, know it, love it, study like a Bible. We didn't go over the meds, I'm noticing, but I think we could touch about another episode. But definitely know everything as a whole, and that's going to make you a great nurse. And not only that, but 
be humble and don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to develop those strong relationships. Don't be afraid to help other nurses. Sacrifice the time for others and they'll scratch your back because we, you all need somebody in the battlefield to kind of have your back and the ICU is a battlefield. All right, guys. Have a good one. See you next Friday. Take care, guys.